I would like to say a thank you to uh, people who are often, I don't want to say overlooked, like nobody notices them, but uh, really they try hard. They practice throughout the week as our musicians. Uh, it's no easy feat. If anyone who doesn't really know music, it can be difficult. And uh, for those that put the time in and practicing throughout the week, for those that fill in for people in the last moment, um, thank you for doing that. It does mean a lot to us. I've been in assemblies where we literally sang to, well, it dates me, but we sang to tapes. Right? We push play on the tape and sing to it, and it's really quite cheesy. I mean, you do what you got to do because you have nothing. I mean, it sounds even worse singing you know, a worship song, especially a modern worship song, when there's no music. It's kind of strange. I think we could do it with our hymnals without music because the, the cantor of the, the song itself kind of goes along in a melody, but... <clears throat> Thank you for all those that are putting in the time and doing those things, and to all those who are doing anything. You know, these young men who take offering each week. You know, it's sometimes difficult to stand up here and have people see you. Uh, I know it frightens me every single time. Not. <laughs> used to. <laughs> all right. So last week we talked a little bit about a uh, uh, little bit about the Feast of Booths, right? So we're going to mention a little bit more about what that is specifically, why that relates to, why that's important in this section, in this section of Scripture. Uh, so last week Derek talked about, not talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, but he mentioned it and talked about it and gave you guys some understanding of what they would do. You remember the booths outside? So um, as we enjoy this life of sanctification, and granted I'm not saying we are sanctified, we're there, we've made it, right? But there are still many things in our lives that we used to do that we no longer have the desire to do because the Holy Spirit has granted us the power over those things. And I'm specifically speaking to some more of the uh, adults here that have led a life of sin prior to Christ, more so than some of the children, and I say children under the age of you know, 30 in the room. Right. So you have been grown in this. You have blossomed in this. Uh, you did not do the things that we did, but that doesn't excuse you from saying you're not still a sinner. <laughs> you still have sinned even though you've grown up in Christ in your house, right? We all have. We all fall short of the glory of God. And we all have things that we need the Holy Spirit to work out in us. So we are enjoying the life of sanctification because God is taking us through. And we can look at this time in our lives and say, this is the good life, right? We feast. We enjoy food together. We have a good community of people and we enjoy that this is the good life there are many people who even reside in churches do not get to enjoy their sunday the way that we enjoy our sunday um i was talking with somebody who i know is a church goer and they were doing some work for me and she was unable to get to the project i needed her to get to so she said no problem i'll be there sunday morning and i'm thinking please don't please go to church instead but that's her business that's how she runs it uh so, I say all that to say, thanks be to God for the goodness that he has blessed us with, that we do get to enjoy, because he has called us out of his darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen? Let's stand for the reading of God's inspired word. I'll be reading to you from John chapter 8, starting verse 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives... Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, 
This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, the law of Moses commands us to stone her. So, what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, and with his finger he wrote in the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. Once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the inspired word of our God. You may be seated. The reason why I mention the Feast of Tabernacles, although it's not even mentioned here in chapter 8, it's mentioned in chapter 7, Feast of Tabernacles is not just a day happening, it's a long period of time. It's important to keep in mind that last week's scripture that we read and what it opens up with, it was the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. This feast would last for eight days. So it wasn't just a little blip. It wasn't like a birthday. It's one day we celebrate and then it's all done the next day. Move on. This is eight days of feasting and celebrating. The Feast of Tabernacles during Jesus' time was full of pageantry and it was fueled with great expectation. It was known as the season of our rejoicing. It's for the Jews. Because the Jewish people believed that the promise of the Messianic kingdom actually would be fulfilled during this time throughout their prophecies. They believed that Jesus, Jesus, the Messiah, who we know as Jesus, the Messiah would come during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay. It actually has another name. You'll see it on your calendars as the feast, also known as Sukkot. Okay. It marked the end of the religious calendar year, and it started with spring in Passover. God grand, God's grand work, which began with Passover and its redemption story, culminated with Sukkot at the end of the theme of restoration. It was the seventh and final God-ordained observance, as recorded in Leviticus 23. It's also the third and final annual feast, which required Jewish men to make the pilgrims to Jerusalem. So there was a lot of people there again. If you guys remember the feeding of 5,000 men, it wasn't just 5,000 men. It was their women and their children that were also there with them. And it totaled roughly around twenty to 25,000 people at that time. So this is one of the three times that people would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So there's a lot of people there at this time. There's going to be a huge crowd that witnessed this adulterous woman. So the Bible says that during the times of Sukkot, I don't want to keep saying the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. So we're just going to go with Sukkot. When I say Sukkot, I want you to understand what I'm talking about, okay? It was a fascinating time. God commanded the people to build temporary booths on their property, as Derek said last week. They were kind of like our children's playhouses, but a little bit bigger, 
And then they would go, the whole family would go into this temporary booth, and it was highly decorated. It was a time of celebration. There was a lot going on for the family to remember this particular time. This was to be in remembrance of the time when the people roamed in the wilderness for 40 years. They had temporary housing. They had tents in which they dwelled in as they moved as nomadic people. This dates back to that. This is why they had temporary booths in their backyards in the celebration. It was a jubilant celebration for seven days. The first day and the eighth day, which was added to the end of the week, were considered Sabbaths. At the temple, priests would sacrifice and they would scurry around at the great altar offering very special sacrifices that could be found in Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29. It was the final Sukkot celebration while on earth that Jesus offered a fulfillment to the anticipating yearning. You remember, they were anticipating the Messianic kingdom to start during this particular feast. Whatever point in history, doesn't mean this particular one during this, this year, but they were knowing and understanding that the Messianic kingdom would start during the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus fulfilled it by offering refreshment, which was a uh, prophecy. And that's found in John 7.37. He fulfilled it with rejoicing, found in John 8.12. And he fulfilled it with rest, found in John 9.14. Throughout the feast, the priest would light giant menorahs. They were huge lamps. Anybody, raise your hand if you know what a menorah looks like. Okay? Single stem, many branches that come out. There's actually seven lamps on there. Or I call them lamps. They're little dishes filled with oil that would be lit. <clears throat> Giant menorahs. This was in the temple. They resided in the court of women. You have the temple. If you remember, you have the Holy of Holies, the curtain. Then you have the, the holy place, which has the showbread, the menorah, and the altar of uh, incense just outside of that, outside of the tent, outside of the temple. And then you had the brazen laver. Outside of that is where the men of Israel would gather. Outside of that is where the women would gather. And then outside of that is where the Gentiles would gather. So they didn't have everybody all mixed in together. But Jesus was specifically teaching in the court of women at this time, also known as the treasury court. This is where they had the giant menorahs. Some sources say that the menorahs would range 40 feet tall. That's how large they were. And they were able to light up the entire temple mount at night. If you can imagine the profound and thrilling effect that this would have had on the people. They didn't have street lights. There was no light pollution like we see. We can see Grove City in the distance when we look up from our backyards. You guys, I'm sure, can see Columbus from yours. Just light pollution. That pale haze in the sky. There's no darkness of space. They didn't have that. So when they would light these giant 40-foot menorahs, and there were four of them, each at one corner of the court, it would put out a lot of light. There was 15 liters of oil per bowl that was lit. So they burned big, bright, and long during this feast. For all eight days, the Temple Mount was lit. It was like a city set on a hill that could not be hid. You could see it from everywhere. You'll start to see how scripture makes reference to certain things, and you go, oh, oh, okay, I can see how that is. We imagine a city set on a hill, which we can't because there aren't cities on a hill anymore. We imagine a city set on a hill that can't be hid, and we go, I don't really understand what that, what that means. 
But if you can imagine how one city would be lit that would light up the entire sky, they're not used to having good vision at night. They didn't have street lights. They didn't have car lights. All they had were little personal oil lamps. So they weren't accustomed to seeing well at night. There were fires throughout, keep people warm, maybe to light away. But it wasn't something that they were accustomed to as we are. This is an extremely important when, we, when Jesus presents to the crowd that he is the light of the world. And that happens in verse 12, which is at the very end of where I'm stopping. I'm stopping at 11. Next week, we talk about Jesus being the light of the world. He's in the temple with these 40-foot menorahs during the Feast of Booths. They understood when he says, I am the light of the world. They knew what he was trying to say, what he was referencing. This is an extremely important point that our good brother will be talking about or something thereof next week. That's his task. In verse 2, we see that Jesus is teaching in the temple. He was first in the Mount of Olives, then he goes to the temple. So for a moment there, I want want to transport you guys back in time a little bit. I want to place you right in front of Jesus as he's teaching in the treasury court. It's just outside of the area where the priests would offer the sacrifices for Israel. This is where Jesus was teaching them and when the Pharisees approached him. So if you understand who and how I think, if you've known me for any bit of time, how I think things through, we're going to see this a little bit more of a colorful palette than what Scripture paints on first gaze. The ancient scriptures tell us that the motive of the Pharisees, without even guessing, it says it right there in the verse, the seventh of the Ten Commandments instructs us not to commit adultery. In Leviticus 20.10, says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. This is a command by Moses who heard it from God. This is God's law. We don't have this law anymore. The courts are very lenient with adultery. They really don't care. We do not have a moral court anymore. They are a court that simply tries to find what's best for the situations, usually what's best for the children involved. So, there's no question. This woman was guilty under the law. No one performed the sin of assumption here. There was no he said, she said. No one accused her of adultery. She was literally caught in the actual act while it was happening. She was caught red-handed. Her penalty was death. Now, at this time, it was illegal for the Jews to enact the death penalty unless it was approved by the Roman prefect. Jesus is now in a rock and a hard spot situation. The law of God was very explicit with the punishment violating that law, but the Romans would not allow them to enact that punishment. Jesus wasn't called to be a civil magistrate amongst the people. In Luke chapter 12, verse 14, Jesus says to the man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? This wasn't his role. He wasn't there to be a judge of Israel. He judged the righteousness of God, but he was not called to be a civil magistrate. So he really couldn't, under the law, 
enact the death penalty on her that the Romans had to obey because he wasn't a magistrate. So Jesus could not make this determination and fall within the law of the land. He also could not violate the law of God by compromising the integrity of it by only sentencing the woman. The law said both the man and the woman, the adulterer and the adulteress, they are to be put to death. So where's the man? Where is he in this story? He was obviously caught in the exact same act at the exact same time as this woman. No one really knows. The Bible doesn't tell us. There's no understanding where this man is. Now, many have speculated that he might have been a man of high stature, and the Pharisees didn't want to sully his name in public. Either way, it wasn't their intention to serve godly justice according to the law and the word of God. They were there for one purpose. The Pharisees' intention was to trap Jesus so that they could have him brought up on charges. Not being compliant with the law of the land or with the law of God, they then presented her to Christ with the sole purpose of testing him to break the laws of Rome or of God. Either way, if he broke Caesar's law, well, then he would be arrested. If he said put her to death, because that's what the law says, he would then be arrested for going against the law of Caesar. And if he said, well, let's, let's not do that because he was afraid to be arrested, well, then he compromises the integrity of the law of God and the Pharisees would discredit him amongst the people. So either way, he's caught between this rock and a hard spot. We've seen Christ do very similar things in times past. We've also seen great judges, um, kings, reminded of Solomon, how the dispute of this child, who this child belongs to, this woman or this woman, he said, well, I'll make it easy for you. Cut the child in half, you can both have a, a slice of him. And the real mother's like, no, let the child go with the fake mom. He was using wisdom. And Solomon gave the child with the real mom because he realized real quick who the real mother was from the answers in which they gave him. Christ does a thing here like that. At this time, we see that our Lord in verse 6, bending low to the ground, he writes in the sand something with his finger. He stands up and says, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. No one knows what he wrote in the sand. We all wish we did. Any guesses is complete speculation. There is zero scriptural evidence, zero historical evidence of what Jesus wrote here. But that doesn't stop preachers from trying to speculate what he wrote. We enjoy doing that kind of thing. We like to make up stuff. Specifically make up stuff that's within the confines of the word. That's really important. Okay, We don't want to just make stuff up for nothing. Okay, So today I'm also going to take a stab at it too. So I beg your pardon if you're like, that's just a bunch of hogwash. That's okay. You can think that. This is what I think. This is my personal opinion. And why I think that, I'll just tell you. And But again, it doesn't mean that I could ever be right because I don't know. It just kind of fits a narrative logical situation that I would see within my own head. So again, it's all just speculation. Once again, second time, he bends down to write in the sand. So, like I said earlier, if you know me at all, I tend to think through a text. 
the meaning, the depth behind it, the people, the places, the things that are going on, the time period in which history, in which this is taking place. This is what I do. This is how my mind thinks. I go, why? I might be just because I'm the skeptic all the time. Why? Why, 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 why? Why this? Why that? Why did Jesus write in the sand? If he's in the temple, the temple doesn't have sandy floor. It's a mosaic tile. So where's the sand come into place? Let's figure that out. Right? So my head goes in strange places sometimes. So bear with me as I go strange this morning, okay? So he bends down and writes this. <clears throat> he does it for the second time. And then it's important for us to see from different angles because we don't have a lot here in Scripture. We don't have the story that's repeated in multiple accounts. Actually, many scholars say that this story, and it's not, it's not made up, the story actually happened. It has apostolic authority, but this story never appeared in the family of scrolls in papyrus script in which they found this story does not exist in the ancient and original texts. So where does it come from? Well, John Calvin says from the oldest of the Greek Orthodox church, you had a split then. You had the Western side and the Eastern side. The Eastern Christians have this account in their scriptural text, and they've been following this same story as if it is apostolically charged. They just didn't know where to put it. John's not the original author. They didn't know where to put it, so they had to put it somewhere because it's found in ancient texts. It's just not found within the family of texts of the the Masoretic. So we don't have multiple accounts to sift through here. We don't have historical evidence that shows us this story took place. We have apostolic writing that we say is the Word of God. It's inspired by the Word of God. You'll find it in your Bibles, and what you will find, most likely, either footnote or right underneath the heading, right before it starts in chapter 8, says, understood by scholars, that it was not a part of the original text. Because most of our Bibles are taken from the King James, which is taken from the Masoretic text. It's not taken from the Eastern Orthodox side. But if you follow their scriptures, as John Calvin says, it's always been there. He had no problem approving, saying that this is actual biblical text. And so this is why we find it in our scriptures, but they are very close. The scholars are very careful to make sure they denote wasn't found in the earliest manuscripts, which is about 4,800 manuscripts that they have dug through, that this story does not show up. That's not to say that, this, that the Bible is an error. It just says the scriptural evidence in which they pulled from, the papyrus that they pulled from, didn't have it there. There's lots of things that they don't have. It doesn't mean that the Bible is wrong. They just didn't have proof. But we have, I mean, archaeological proof I'm talking about. We have proof because it has lasted. And this story has been passed down in other scrolls. So, it's the Word of God. And we're sticking with it. Amen? Amen? Amen. Okay. All right. So, let's figure this out, right? It's also very important, as we use logic in Scripture... Logic cannot be used to figure out what Scripture is saying, nor can it be used to figure out what, the, what a, doctrine, a doctrinal understanding is. Do not use logic. You will go wrong most of the time. And this is why we have heresies. This is why we have panels, committees. We have uh, creeds that hash it out because men just try to think through who God is. 
It is okay, however, to use logic and paint the picture between the lines. What's going on? Are these people, they're, they're not Chinese, so we can't look at the Chinese culture. We have to look at a nomadic Israeli culture. This is what they're used to. So let's look at it through their eyes. That's okay. Please, please, please. It's very dangerous. Do not open the Bible and just go, oh, that's what it means to me. Okay? Search it out. Because what it means to you, man's heart is deceitfully wicked, will fool you every time because it will want to make you comfortable with the sin in which you sit. So figure out what Scripture has to say, and we can do well by looking into history that have already hashed this out throughout church history. So, with that being said, here comes my speculation. Imagine, if you will, when Jesus bends down for the first time, he's writing something in the sand that doesn't bother them. They're not taken back by it. He's writing something in the sand. What could it be? Something that doesn't bother him. While he's writing it, they're actually asking him, continually to asking him, what should we do with her? So what he wrote in the sand the first time didn't cause an issue with them. Jesus does everything for a purpose. He wasn't just scribbling, trying to practice his name in cursive. He had a reason to be down there. And what he wrote meant something. The first time, he could have wrote something like Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, where it says that thou shalt not commit adultery, right? They're there to accuse this woman who was caught in the act. So he could have wrote Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, thou shalt not commit adultery. That wouldn't have thrown anybody off their pins. And we see scripturally that it didn't throw anybody off their pins, whatever he wrote. It wasn't something controversial, they continue to say, okay, you know, that, this is good. I see you're writing something, something they recognize, most likely. The Bible says that they continued to ask, what should we do with this woman? There was no pulling out of the hair at this moment. There was no renting of the cloth because he just said something that was so sacrilegious and blasphemous to God. I say said, but wrote in the sand, right? So... Maybe they had no problem with the first thing that he wrote. He then stood up and said, after writing this thing, that I'm speculating could be the seventh of the Ten Commandments, not to commit adultery. He then stands up, looks them all in the eye, says, he who is without sin, let him be the first one to cast the stone to kill her. She was to be killed by stoning. Rocks hurled at her body, at her head. A brutal, bludgeoning death. Not clean. Very painful. This was her punishment. This was right. This was proper under the law of God. So he tells them all, okay, rock in a hard spot place. I say... The first person who can throw the stone at her and start throwing, let that be the person who's without sin. Then he bends down a second time. Okay? He bends down a second time and he writes in the sand again. Here they're pierced in the heart. Then they begin to drop their stones one by one, starting with the oldest. Now, R.C. Sproul does some speculating as well. 
he says that possibly, while looking at the oldest man, the second time he bends down, he writes the name Shirley. Looking at another one, he writes embezzlement. Looking at the next, he's writing drunkenness. It was in that moment that they started to drop their stones, the Bible says, one by one, starting with the oldest. Something he wrote in the sand the second time is what really pierced them in the heart. It wasn't what he said. Him who is without sin, let him be the first to cast a stone. These guys are already riled up. They're looking for blood. They want to kill this woman. More importantly, they want to trap Jesus. But they're looking to kill her. They already have stones in their hands. The Bible says that they dropped them. If they had nothing to drop, they wouldn't have to reference they dropped them. They already had stones in their hand ready to kill her with a bludgeoning, cruel, painful death to watch her suffer while they essentially beat her into lifelessness with stones, rocks, jagged, not smooth. Horrible way to die. Whatever he wrote in the sand the second time, that's when they begin to drop their stones one by one. R.C. Sproul Sr. speculates that because he knew the heart and the mind of every man there, he was able to address their specific sins. Now, we don't know for sure. What we do know is the scripture says, when he began to write again, and he wrote in the sand, after saying, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone, they saw what he was writing. That's when they were pierced in the heart and began to drop their stones, starting at the oldest, working their way down. Why the oldest? Probably because he knows better. Some of you older folks, you've been around longer. You understand. You understand just how dirty you can be. Younger folk, we just... I'd say we, I'm not even there anymore. Younger folk, <laughs> you think you're on top of the world. You're, 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 you can't be hurt. You, you're you're, you're going to die. You've got so long to go before you die. Right? So your mind is not wrapped around the finiteness of your life. But when you're 75, you start thinking, any moment now, it's around the bend. And you've lived life a lot longer. You've done a lot more sins than somebody who's 13. So when the Bible says the oldest drops the stone first, that's because he knows better. Shirley, I remember Shirley. Oh my gosh. Oh my, I can't believe he just looked right at me and said, Shirley, I knew what I did. It doesn't have to be Shirley. It could be anything. Something pierced him. It's just speculation because we don't know. But oh, what a story that is, right? Christ knew something. He knew enough to say something that pierced them in the hearts. Another point of interest is that the role of the Messiah was to reconcile man back to God. His duties were to cause man to look to God for all their needs once again as he did in the garden. He was to return man back to God and point man Godward. That was the duty of the Messiah. <clears throat> So I started thinking, why sand? Why the finger? 
What is a finger? Why writing with the finger? What does that have to do with anything? There were only two times in all of Scripture that a finger is used to write. The finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments on the tablet, Mount Sinai, for Moses. He wrote the Ten Commandments for our instruction of how to live for Him. The second time, the hand of God wrote on the wall of King Balthazar when Daniel had to interpret. What does this mean? Because none of his wise men and sages could figure that out. They called Daniel out of the prison to interpret what this inscription was on the wall. I won't even begin to try to pronounce it. Just know it's there. You know the story, hopefully, right? Raise your hand if you don't know the story. I will not be going through the story. You can ask your parents to go through it with you. Okay. So, <laughs> the handwriting on the wall, what does it mean when it was interpreted? And it was said to the king of Chaldeans, it says that your, your kingdom has been found guilty of sin and your kingdom is now finished and will be divided and handed over to the Medes and the Persians. That night, the king dies. Daniel's elevated as one of the rulers of the Medo-Persian Empire. Just over a hundred years after this event, the entire Jewish race is saved from annihilation when the young lady goes into the court of the king and bows before him with the information that his right-hand man was trying to slaughter every Jew in existence. Today, the Jewish people celebrate Esther because of what she did. It, it, she did it a hundred years after the kingdom had been handed over to the Persians. She went to a Persian king and begged that the lives of all of the Jews would be spared. And it was. It's a great lesson that we see. The finger of God gives instruction. The finger of God wrote prophecy that had to happen in order for the Messiah to come from a lineage of people that still existed. If had they been wiped out, there would not have been a Messiah. Providence of God, sure there would have been. But go with me on this trip. Okay. So, it was something convicting that he wrote in the sand a second time. Maybe it was something referencing back to the Ten Commandments the first time. Maybe it was something referencing Daniel's inscription. Maybe it was referencing both. We don't really know. But I find it interesting that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger. In verse 10, Jesus rises up from what he wrote and asked her, Where are your accusers? He was the only one there. He was the only one indeed to fit he who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. He's the only one without sin. So he should have been the one throwing the stone. Why? Why should he? Why? Because he's the inspired word. He wrote on the tablets to begin with. He wrote on the wall in Balthazar's palace. The deity of Christ, the second person of the Trinity, was there present when writing with a finger. And he chooses to write with a finger again. And he's the only one 
being the inspired word, who has the right and the responsibility to throw the stone to kill her. Because it was his law that he was fulfilling and upholding. But we see that his choice was something different. Jesus asked her, has anyone pronounced a sentence upon you today? She answers him and says, no. Jesus says, neither do I. So go and sin no more. In saying go and sin no more, Jesus is not speaking go and be sinlessly perfected. He was warning her against returning to the lifestyle of sinful choices. His words were both merciful and they demanded holiness. With forgiveness comes the expectations that we will not continue in the same path of rebelliousness. Those who know God's love will naturally want to obey him. It should be the goal of every Christian to sin no more. Although we recognize that while we are yet in this flesh, we will stumble. God's desire for each of us is to be holy as he is holy. We still sin, but sin is no longer the lifestyle that we choose. We choose him. We're not getting into the freedom of will. We're not talking about that. I'm saying every day we get up, we choose another day that we are going to live for him. The mercy that the Lord showed that woman on that day really showed the crowd, picture how many people are there, that his doctrine was revolutionary. He performed this mercy during the Feast of Tabernacles while delivering his teaching in the temple underneath the tall burning menorah. He shows us that none are without sin and judgment, but judgment must first start with ourselves and that we need to remove the large beam from our own eye before trying to remove the speck from our brother or sister's eye. He also shows extreme mercy and forgiveness to someone who is deserving punishment. She deserved it. He tells the crowd immediately after saying go and sin no more that he is the light of the world. People of God, Have you been shown the same mercy while you yet deserve punishment? Of course we have. Today, purpose within yourselves to judge not and be thankful for the mercy that he has shown to you and to strive to practice showing mercy to others. And his light will lead you to to everlasting life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time in which we can gather and hear your word. Lord, this is a section of scripture that uh, really doesn't have a whole lot to chew on as far as understanding. But yet, Lord, we know that you forgave a woman who was steeped in her sin for whatever her reason, whatever situation she was in, Lord. It's not a thing that women would choose because it was a high calling, a great profession, a, a wonderful thing to do. It was often done because it was the only thing they could do. They had no one to care for them, and they had to eat. And yet, Lord, you showed mercy on this woman who was caught violating your law as we do every day of our lives. Lord, show mercy upon us, Lord. Continue to do so. We are thankful, Lord, for the mercy that you have shown us. Lord, help us to not be judgmental on those that we deem in sin. Lord, as we think over our lives and the things in which you've forgiven us for, 
God, may we be the first to drop our stones and not be casting continual judgment towards our brethren. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.